0: Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Apparently it's time to get up. So I'm, I'm ready. Here I am. We forgive you, whoever it was. It's Okay. Let me pray for us. Father, we are just so thankful to be able to study your word, to be able to open the truth of the text of scripture. We're so thankful, Father, for a church that is serious about worship, Lord. Serious about thinking about you. Serious about doing your will, Father. And I pray you'd be honored by the things that we say for the next little while. I pray that you would open the truth to our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray you'd be honored and glorified, Father. Maybe be transformed more into the image of your son Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that we pray, amen. I want to begin this morning by reading a quote from Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr was an early church father, lived in the second century, wrote extensively about the early first century church. And I want to begin by reading something he's written because it paints for us a picture not only of the ancient practice of the Lord's Supper, but it helps us understand the importance of what we're about to do since the beginning of Christianity. So written in the year 138, I think we have the quote up on the screen. It's several screens long, but I want you to bear with me. Written in the 2nd century, early part of the 2nd century, it's a picture of the early church and the importance to them of the Lord's Supper. Here's what Justin Martyr says, I begin with this story because it paints for us a picture not only of the ancient practice of the Lord's Supper, but of its importance since the beginning of Christianity. You know, I just read my notes to you. (laughs) Can you edit that last 30 seconds out? I just said that again. Some of you may not have been awake. Let's start over. Now let's read the actual code that matters, not my notes. Then, he says... Bread and a cup containing water mixed with wine are brought to the overseer of the brothers. He takes both and He gives praise and glory to the Father of the universe through the name of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He offers copious or abundant thanks that by Him we have been deemed worthy to receive these gifts. At the end of the prayer and the thanksgiving, all the people assembled give their assent saying, Amen. When the overseer has given thanks to all the people, excuse me, when over, the overseer has given thanks and all the people have assented, those we call table stewards or deacons give each one present some of the bread and the wine with water that was accepted with thanksgiving and take some of it home to those who are absent. This meal we call Thanksgiving or Eucharist or as we call it today, the Lord's Supper. No one is allowed to take part in it except he who believes that the things we teach are true who has received the bath for the forgiveness of sins and of new birth. By the way, that's a picture of baptism. And who lives according to the teachings handed down by Christ. For we do not partake of this meal as if it were ordinary food or ordinary drink. Rather, through the Logos of God, our healing Savior, Jesus Christ, became flesh and accepted flesh and blood for the sake of our salvation. Hence, as we have been taught... The food taken with thanksgiving in the words of prayer he handed down to us in the flesh and blood of that Christ who became flesh. Our flesh and blood are strengthened by this eating and drinking for our transformation. Justin Martyr 138. I can't help but think about what it must have been like when he wrote that. Just literally over a hundred years since... The crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the early church was fledgling, there was persecution. I think as he wrote this, he probably wrote it with candles burning or possibly a lamp on papyrus. But I wanted to read this quote because it helps us understand that the Lord's Supper is steeped in great history. And literally from the days of Christ, believers have been partaking of the Lord's Supper together to honor Him and to remember all that He's done. And I think back over the centuries And I think some believers have eaten this meal together in great freedom like we do today. And I think there are other believers that have eaten this under great persecution. There are believers who have eaten this meal in public with no fear. And there are believers who have hidden in caves and in hideouts under houses and in abandoned warehouses for fear of the authorities. There are people that have partaken this meal down through the centuries in homes and some in churches and some in cathedrals. And today, as followers of Jesus Christ, we stand in a long line of believers as we symbol together this morning to eat of the Lord's Supper. And so I'm going to encourage you this morning, if you have your Bibles, to open to Luke chapter 22. We're going to examine the narrative of the story of the Last Supper of Christ and His disciples And we're going to try to understand how that leads us to worship. This is week 8 in our series on worship. And you've probably already noticed that we're going to be taking the Lord's Supper today. Now let me give you a little bit of context of Luke chapter 22 as you're turning in your Bibles. At this point in the Gospel of Luke, the end is near. Jesus Christ has lived probably around 33 years, most scholars believe. He's walked the earth. He's lived a sinless life. He's willingly walked into Jerusalem. And when we pick up the story in Luke chapter 22, he's literally hours before his crucifixion. You may remember Sunday of the last week of his life, he walks into Jerusalem triumphantly. Palm branches waving Crowds shouting Hosanna, people believing He's come to take over as king and to lead the Jewish people back into their rightful place. That was on Sunday. By Friday, He would be arrested and crucified. And so when we read this account in Luke chapter 22, we are literally hours before His arrest and eventual crucifixion. So let's read together Luke chapter 22 beginning in verse 1. Now, the Bible says, the feast of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching. It's a very important Jewish time of the year, verse 2. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Now, if you've studied the Gospels at all, you know that the pressure was mounting against Christ. The desire of these religious leaders to find him, to arrest him, to crucify him is building. And so they're looking for a way to get rid of him. Verse 3. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. Verse 6. He consented. And watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Now we're going to stop there for a few minutes. Because there's some things we need to understand before we come to the Lord's table. Because I want you to hear me when I say this to you this morning. This is not just something else we do in church. It's not just another program. It's not just another activity When we partake of the Lord's Supper as the body of Christ, we're not only remembering centuries past of history of the Christian church, we're not only remembering all that Christ has done, but we're hoping with anticipation for what He's going to continue to do in the future. And So we need to be prepared. And so there's some truths I want you to understand from this text that will help us as we prepare our hearts and prepare our minds for what we're going to do together in just a few minutes. Here's the first truth. As we come together this morning to the Lord's table, number one, we must keep our focus on Christ. We need to keep our focus on Christ. Now, we don't know a lot about Judas Iscariot. We can certainly read some accounts in Scripture about him. But as we read about these last few moments of Christ's life and of Judas' betrayal, questions enter our minds. And we begin to wonder things like this. Why would Christ, knowing all that would come to pass, invite this man who would betray him into the twelve? We wonder why would that happen. We wonder why Judas seemingly gave his life to Christ and followed him around. Could you imagine all that Judas saw? Could you imagine seeing Christ walk on the water? Could you imagine seeing Christ Feed the 5,000? Could you imagine seeing Christ raise Lazarus from the dead? Could you imagine seeing Christ heal the blind and cause the lame to walk? Could you imagine seeing all those things? Judas did, and we ask ourselves the question, why would he do all those things and experience all those things and in the very end betray the one who loved him the most? We ask ourselves the question, how long did this thought in his mind take to conceive? Was it something he thought of early? Was it something that happened in the end? How long did it take him to actually decide to betray Christ? We have so many questions and so few answers, but verse 6 clues us into his heart, and it's a warning to us. Because the Bible says, after whatever period of time and whatever took place and whatever questions had to be answered, verse 6, speaking of Judas, he consented. At some point it became his heart's desire to betray Christ. And I think it's an awfully important thing for us to understand that we need to examine our hearts. And we need to guard our hearts. And we need to be aware That just as Judas at some point loved Christ and just as Judas followed Christ and just as Judas wanted to do the things Christ called him to do, he was deceived and he was tricked and in the end he betrayed Christ. See, here's the thing about our lives. If we're not awfully careful, sin will creep in and creep in and creep in until it eventually overtakes us. You see, nobody wakes up one morning and thinks this. I think I'm going to destroy my life today. I think I'm going to make a decision today that's not only going to destroy me and my reputation, it's going to destroy my family. Nobody wakes up and thinks, I'm going to, thinks today's the day I'm going to kind of mess everything up. Nobody has that thought. Instead, what they do is they allow little things to creep in and they say, you know what, this is not a big deal. I'm just going to go right in here for just a moment. I won't be here long. And after a period of time, they find that they like where they are, and they see something else they want to do, and they step another step forward and another step forward. And after days and possibly weeks and maybe months and maybe even years, sin has crept in, and they come to the point that they are willing to betray the things of the Lord in favor of the things of Satan. It's interesting how things change over time and we barely notice, isn't it? If you've had children or grandchildren, you understand this very clearly. You you look at your children now or you look at your grandchildren now and you see how they've grown and you think, I'm proud of them. And it's amazing how big they've become. And you get out pictures from just a few years ago and they look like children, don't they? Just babies. When you have young children, that changes in a hurry. And you can have young children like I do that are relatively young. And even four and five years ago, it's amazing the change that takes place. It's hard for us to notice that because we're kind of right in the middle of it. We take a step back and we begin to understand the bigger picture and see the bigger picture. We see that things change very slowly, very slowly, but very surely. Things creep and they creep and they change and they change and sin is just like that. I got a feeling Judas didn't wake up early in Christ's ministry and think in three years I'm going to betray him to the Sadducees and the Pharisees. He lets sin creep in and creep in and creep in. Adam, you're, you're making a big deal of this. It's not really that big of a deal. <laughs> I mean, come on, I'm just, I'm just doing this. It's not, I'm just, I've just strayed a little bit and I'm not going to stray any farther. It's just it's one little step and I'm not worried about it. You don't need to be worried. It's not a big deal, Adam. Don't, don't put too much into this. Well, let me remind you. Scripture gives us very clear warning. 1 Peter 5a, your enemy... The devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You understand that? He's not passive. He's active. And he's not going to wait on you. He's going to come and find you. And one of the biggest tools he has in his arsenal is to trick you into thinking this next little step is not a big deal. Because I can stop there. And after a period of time later, you've fallen into sin and you've betrayed the Lord. We need to guard our hearts. As we come to this table, we need to focus on Christ. Now look again at verse 7 as we move through this text. Luke 22, verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. He replied, this is Jesus in verse 10, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters. And say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished, make preparations there. They left and found things just as Christ had told them, so they prepared the Passover. Here's the second truth we need to understand as we come to the Lord's table. Not only do we have to guard ourselves, not only should we always focus on Christ, but number two, we need to prepare for our time with Christ. We need to prepare for our time with with Christ. Now the Bible doesn't give us any specifics about this upper room. It's a very interesting story and people for centuries have debated it. We don't know where the upper room was exactly. We don't know what it looked like. There is in Jerusalem now kind of the traditional site of the upper room and the place that Christ had his final meal with his disciples. But we know it's not the real place because that building wasn't built until several hundred years after the death of Christ. But scholars believe possibly it was on the same location as the upper room. So we don't know much about it. We know it was an upper room, we know it was a large room, we know it was furnished, probably in the house of a very wealthy person. Obviously somebody that was a supporter of Jesus Christ. Some argue it possibly could have been Nicodemus from John chapter 3. Some argue it could have been Joseph of Arimathea who gave Christ the tomb to be buried in. But we don't know. But what we do know is before the disciples in Christ made their way into the upper room, preparations had to be made. Now I want to reread verses 7 through 13. And I want you to listen to the importance of preparation. In verse 8, Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Verse 9, where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. Now skip down to verse 12. He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. Verse 13, so they left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. See, there's this sense here of preparing before they came together. Now, we understand there's a couple kinds of preparations we can make here. The first type of preparation is physical, of course. Christ asked him to go and find the room, be sure it was properly prepared. Certainly there was food that had to be cooked. There were things that had to be gathered to prepare physically for that meal. We've done that already this morning. We've set the table. The, The food is prepared. It's ready to be eaten. We've done the physical preparation. But there's another sort of preparation that the Scripture speaks of that's more important to us right now in this context. It's a spiritual preparation. It's the idea of getting our hearts and our minds ready to come and partake of the Lord's Supper together. I want to read you a text from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You don't have to flip there if you don't want. But I want you to mark it down if you're taking notes and I want you to listen to what it says. Speaking of the Lord's Supper very clearly, here are the instructions. The Apostle Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord, that's the Lord's Supper, that's what we're going to do here in just a few minutes. Whoever eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Now here's the challenge for you. A man and a woman ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. You say, what sorts of things should I be doing to examine my heart? We're going to give you an opportunity in just a little while to do that. But you ask, what are the things I should be doing to examine my heart? Well, here's the first question you need to answer. Here's the first area you need to examine yourself in. Number one, it's clear from Scripture that only believers should partake of the Lord's Supper. Paul's clear about that. Paul says you need to understand the Lord. You need to recognize who the Lord is. if you don't do that... If you're not a believer, then you eat and drink judgment on yourself. You say, well, I'm I'm, I'm a believer. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. What are the things I need to be examining in my life? You need to examine your heart. And you need to spend time in prayer asking the Lord, Lord, are there things that I've done in my life that have separated me from you? Is there a sin in my life, Lord, that's been committed that I've just kind of been hanging on to that I need to release to you and ask for forgiveness for? Is there something I did this week that I need to repent of? Is there a brother or sister in this body that I know of that I've sinned against? Or maybe our relationship is broken. I need to go to that person. I need to ask for forgiveness. I need to pray with that person. Is there a relationship with a spouse or a child or a family member that needs to be fixed that you need to pray about? You need to examine your hearts. You need to examine your lives. You need to be very sure through prayer that there's nothing that would separate you from Christ because it's important for us to understand this. Christ gave His life for us. It seems ridiculous that we would allow sin to stand between us and the Lord's Supper, doesn't it? After all He's done for us, we need to prepare our hearts for Him. Now verse 14, we need to continue through. We should prepare our hearts. We're going to give you a chance to do that, to think through that, to pray through that in just a few moments. Now the account of the actual supper in verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. By the way, they didn't sit in chairs. They literally laid on their side. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now remember, Christ knew exactly what was coming. He understood. The disciples didn't. We do because of the context of history and we understand by reading the rest of the Gospels exactly what's going to happen. But at this point, the disciples really didn't have any idea, but Christ does. And he says, I've desired to do this, to eat with you before I suffer. Verse 16, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and he said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Here's the third truth. Not only should we guard our hearts in preparation for this, Not only should we prepare our hearts and our minds spiritually for this, but number three, as we come together to the Lord's table, we must understand and remember Christ's love and devotion for us. The point of what we're going to do in just a little while is to remember all that He's done and all that He's given and all that He's sacrificed. See, Christ in the midst of the last few moments of his life, the last several hours of his life, wanted to spend time with his disciples. And he wanted to share with them how much he loved them. He wanted them to understand how devoted he was to them. And so he sat down to eat with them to help them remember all that had taken place. Now here's something important we need to understand about this supper. We've read a couple of times already in Luke 22 that it was the Passover meal and the Passover meal for the Jewish people in that time period and even today was a very important meal. It reminded them of all they had done and all they had been through and all that had happened to their ancestors in Egypt. So when they took the Passover meal together, it was designed to remind them of their slavery in Egypt And how the Lord had brought them through and saved them through the blood of the Lamb posted over the doorpost. You remember the story where the death angel passes over and leaves the houses of those that had followed him. And so the Passover meal was a picture of all the Lord had done and all the Lord had given through the Exodus and with the people of Israel. And that's interesting because our staff had an opportunity this week. I didn't plan it like this. I wish I had. It would have sounded a lot better. But our staff had the opportunity this last Tuesday to go to the... Antiquities Center here in LaGrange. Explorations and Antiquities. If you've never been, it's basically a biblical museum. You should go. It's worth the price of admission. And they've just gotten in some brand new um, displays and exhibits from the Holy Land and Jerusalem. They've got some some pots that are literally thousands of years old and some pictures of things. and It's it's a really neat experience. And then you walk out back and they walk you through a, a Bedouin camp and The cross and a wine press it's all working stuff and you see it and your children would would enjoy it. But we had the opportunity when we finished to eat a biblical meal together. And so they serve you and they fix it and they explain as you go kind of what the biblical meal would have looked like and the importance of the Passover. And it was amazing to me, even though I knew a lot of these things from study, it was amazing to me how when you take that meal, there's so much symbolism of the Old Testament and the Passover in that meal. And the list is long, but it's just some of the very interesting things that we did. One of the things that they had us do is they had these green onions, these long green onions that you're to eat, and they have this cup of salt water. And you're to dip the onion into the salt water, and there's the bitter taste that reminds you of the bitterness of slavery, but the salt reminds you of the tears of the ancestors that were cried in slavery in Egypt. It's a picture. It's a reminder of the Jewish people of where they have been. They take eggs and they at that time, they don't do it like this anymore, they would literally put them into the fire and roast them. And so it turns out to be like a hard-boiled egg, the same sort of thing we would eat. So they had all these hard-boiled eggs and you have to crack them and peel them and, and eat them. And it's a picture, they said, of the sacrifices that were made in the fires of the altars of the temple thousands of years ago. It's a reminder. It's a picture of all these things that these people had accomplished and how their ancestors had lived in slavery and how the Lord had brought them out of captivity. We ate this brown mixture called cha rosette, which was made up of apples and honey and nuts mixed together. And when you looked at it, it was just kind of a brown, pasty, strange-looking dish. But you tasted it. It was very sweet. It's a picture of the mortar. They wanted you to remember the mortar that they used to make the bricks while in captivity in Egypt. The entire meal is a reminder. It's a picture of where they had been. So when Christ comes together with the disciples, and they partake together of the Lord's Supper, the Passover meal, they remember everywhere they have been. They remember all the ancestors had done for them. But here's the most amazing part about this. Christ says, we're coming together to eat this Passover meal, guys. You remember all that has happened in the past. You remember through the bitter herbs and the greens and the eggs and all the things you're going to eat, all the Lord has done and all the Lord has accomplished. But Christ says, from this point forward, when you take this meal, guess what? No longer do you remember the past, but instead you do this and remember of what? Me. I'm going to take this meal that was steeped in history. And so important to you and so important to your ancestors. And I'm going to tell you, you continue to do this. But every time you do it from this point forward, you remember me. Christ says, this meal from this point on will be in remembrance of me. Of all that I've done, of all that I've given, of all that I've accomplished. Verse 19. So he took the bread. And he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now let's just, as we finish up this morning, I want to paint a picture for you very clearly. Jesus Christ is with his disciples. It's the last few moments of his freedom on this earth. He chooses to spend it with the men that he'd spent the last three years of his life with. Loving them, serving them, teaching them, training them. For the last few moments of his life on earth, he spends it with him in this upper room. They eat together, they sing together, they pray together. The Bible says after they had finished, they walked outside of the walls of the city of Jerusalem. They walked across the Kidron Valley, up into the Mount of Olives. Christ prays for just a few hours. Judas betrays him. He's arrested, and hours later he will be crucified. So Christ's entire life, his entire ministry, it all comes down to this. And when we partake of this meal, we remember Him. We're reminded of all He's done for us and all He's given to us. We're reminded of His suffering and what He accomplished. And when we do this and we remember all that He's done, it ought to cause us to worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the incredible teaching, Lord, you've given us through this meal of remembering, Father, all you've done for us, remembering your sacrifice, remembering what you've given. So, Lord, I pray that as we move into a time of, Father, a time of of prayer and, Lord, a time of partaking together of this meal, I pray you would just help us to remember. You would just focus our hearts, Father. You would guard our hearts. You would help us to see in this meal To remember all you've done for us. And I pray you'd be honored and glorified by the things we say and do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can stand. We're going to have a few moments of invitation. We want to give you an opportunity. If you want to come and pray at the altar, you can do that. If you want to repent of your sins and accept Christ, you can do that. If you want to join this church, this is your time now as we sing together for just a few moments.